we cannot possibly sit fenced off in little silos of our own faith communities and imagine that that alone is going to bring peace. We have to figure out how to understand each other, how to communicate with each other, how to commune with each other, how to support each other, how to cry with each other, how to laugh with each other, et cetera, et cetera. Even if if at the end of the day, we go home and we each pray to our own conceptions of a creator, and we each use our own liturgy, there are enough commonalities and there are enough beauties in our differences that we need to, to understand and appreciate in order to to build bridges and to have understanding. Welcome to Everything is Spiritual, a podcast from Soul Care Urban Retreat Center. We're talking with local folks, faith leaders, creatives, thinkers, and community advocates, getting personal about their faith and spirituality and how it shows up in their daily life and work. I'm Kelly Skinner, your host, and I'm sharing these heart-centered conversations to invite you to become more aware that everything is spiritual and to deeply connect with what is most true and alive in your own everyday life. He is a reform rabbi, the son of a retired reform rabbi, and married to a reform rabbi. And if you have no idea what it means to be a member of America's largest Jewish denomination, He'll explain it in just a minute. I'm talking today with Rabbi Alan Cook from Sinai Temple in Champaign. If you're unfamiliar with Jewish traditions, or if your ideas of what it means to be Jewish come from movies or television, you'll find that Rabbi Alan is tremendous at sharing simple yet thorough explanations. He's had quite a bit of practice after all, because he's been instrumental in forming and leading the Interfaith Alliance of Champaign County. And he clearly has a heart for making connections with people. Rabbi Allen, or sometimes affectionately known as Rabbi Cookie, approaches life with and his faith and what goes on in our world with mindfulness, gratitude, and deliberation. But he also sneaks in some humor. Be sure you listen in to the very end where he shares one of the poems he's written based on the 54 weekly Torah portions. Let's meet Rabbi Allen. My story starts when I was born as my parents' first child while my dad was completing uh, rabbinical school at the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion in Cincinnati. That is the seminary for reform rabbis here in the United States, one of several campuses uh, for Reform rabbis here in the United States. And so, as I said, I was, I was my parents' oldest child, firstborn child, and he was completing rabbinical school. So grew up in a family that uh, had a strong dedication to Judaism. And my mother was was an educator, and she had many family connections to the reform movement of Judaism. And we moved around. My father's first job, actually, after ordination, was running a Jewish summer camp. He was ordained at a time when it was expected that all rabbis would spend some time uh, in chaplaincy during the Vietnam War, when he was deemed ineligible to enter the army, and so uh, scrambled for a job and was the director of a summer camp for a while before entering pulpit work. He is currently retired, 
after a number of years in a number of different positions, but uh, grew up with my siblings and I, you know, always being connected not only to the congregations in which my father worked, but also to the broader Jewish community and dedication to the idea and ideal that uh, Judaism could be a vehicle for making the world a better place for involvement in social action and social justice causes. Wow. So you had mentioned that you and your father were both reform in the reform tradition. Can you explain a little bit what that means? You know, there are, are three major denominations here in the United States of Jewish expression. You may have listeners that, that quibble with that de- definition, but demographically, you know, three really large Jewish denominations. There is Orthodoxy, which by their definition follows the traditions as they feel were handed down from generation to, to generation without too much adaptation over time. They feel that they are following uh, a tradition that is consistent with with scripture and with later Jewish writing and so forth. There is conservative that is sort of, and then there is reform, which was really created as an American phenomenon in the late 19th century that tries to be sort of on the more liberal, not politically necessarily, but, uh, but religiously, theologically, tries to be on the more liberal end of the spectrum. One of the ways that I can best illustrate that and define that would be to talk, for instance, about Sabbath observance. So in the Torah, in Jewish scripture, is the term that Jews use for the first five books of the Bible, so Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And in the Torah, we read about Sabbath observance, among other things, that we are not supposed to kindle a fire on the Sabbath. So when the internal combustion engine came around, the different denominations of Judaism had to had to determine, you know, is that making a fire and therefore is driving permitted or forbidden on Shabbat, on the Sabbath? And so orthodoxy would say, yes, this is directly related to the creation of a fire. When you turn your ignition key, you are creating a spark that is lighting a fire. Therefore, there should be no driving period, end of discussion, so on and so forth. As we start to build suburban orthodox synagogues in the United States and and elsewhere, we may even block off our parking lots during the Sabbath to make sure that nobody is going to transgress that commandment and to make sure that nobody is going to drive on the Sabbath. Conservative Judaism, also incidentally a largely American phenomenon of of the late 19th century, conservative Judaism said, okay, well, as we are building in suburbia, people don't necessarily live in walking distance to their synagogues anymore. And so let us say that if you need to, in order to facilitate yourself getting to and from the synagogue, if you need to drive on the Sabbath, do it to get to and from the synagogue, but don't make an extra trip. Don't drive through Starbucks for your coffee on the way, et cetera, et cetera. Reform Judaism said, is a prohibition on driving or any other prohibition for that matter, is it going to heighten your sense of spirituality? Is it going to heighten your sense of connection to the true meaning of the Sabbath and true to your connection with God? Or is having that restriction going to, in some ways, bother you and and restrict you from the joy of the Sabbath and from the spirit of what this law was originally created for? And 
So we leave it up to each individual to determine, okay, of all of these commandments that are placed upon the Jewish community through the Torah and through other levels of Jewish tradition, which ones find particular resonance with you? Which ones give you meaning? And so uh, one uh, famous theologian of the 20th and 21st century, Rabbi Eugene Borowitz, taught that Reform Judaism is about informed choice, that you need to not just say, because I am a Reformed Jew, I don't do X, but I have informed myself. I have thought about what is going to bring me meaning, what is going to bring me a sense that I resonate with my spirituality, and I will do those commandments. And those commandments that don't do that for me, maybe I don't follow as much to the letter. That makes a lot of sense. And thank you for that really clear explanation about the three different denominations, if you will, of Judaism. And uh, that that example has actually really cleared things up for me in my mind as well. So growing up with a father who was a rabbi, tell me about how that influenced your own faith and spirituality growing up, and how has your own understanding of your faith evolved over the years? Yeah, I will say, you know, certainly that the bulk of my, you know, formal understanding of my place with, with, within the Jewish world certainly came because, you know, I was uh, growing up in the various congregations where my father served, and so my siblings and I, you know, were somewhat uh, thrust into that that fishbowl that comes when you are a rabbi's kid or a, or a preacher's kid. You know, at certain times, certainly we we chafed against that, but also I think that, you know, what rescued me and my siblings in in some ways was the the strength of of the Jewish identity in the home as well. For many years during elementary school. I attended Jewish parochial school, so you know, got the the immersion into Jewish life and and culture during my schooling as well. And you know, I, I would say one of of my early memories in terms of making the the connection on my own to what Judaism had to offer and and what we could do, you know, sort of by lifting up our faith came. In must have been the early 1980s, I grew up in Miami, Florida, and uh, there was a strong movement uh, throughout the country within the Jewish community to help out uh, Jews from what was then the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union had policies in place that were not allowing free Jewish expression, and many uh, many Soviet Jews, when they applied for exit visas to come to the United States or to, or to emigrate to, to Israel, were being denied, were being made to be political prisoners, and so forth. And Jews just really did not have it easy there. And so Jews in the U.S. were taking up the cause of what were known as, as refuseniks, Soviet Jews who had been refused exit from the country. And uh, so there were a number of rallies on behalf of that movement. And I remember going to a rally in Miami as part of a, of, of a synagogue group. 
And the featured guest was the late Mary Travers from the, the folk group Peter, Paul, and Mary. Not herself Bush, but obviously involved in, in social action causes. And, you know, that sort of carried forward to me that you know, the strength in numbers and the need to, to care about others outside of ourselves and how we could harness all of those potentials and advocate for change. And that, you know, that change wouldn't necessarily come immediately. And that was also a learning curve for me that I wasn't going to leave the rally and things would suddenly be different, that this was going to be an ongoing effort. But it sort of drove home for me and, and, and inspired me that beyond, you know, reading words on a page, beyond sort of, you know, rote repetition of liturgy or scriptural information or, or so forth, that faith had the opportunity to advocate for a difference. And faith had, if you will, the obligation to advocate for a difference. Hmm. And so for you, that was a real turning point. Yeah, I, I think so. You know, I, again, I don't recall exactly what year it was. And I, you know, I was beginning to get involved in synagogue youth group to think about, you know, youth group activities, not just being, you know, pool parties and movie nights and, and so forth, but also a fair amount of, of advocacy and, you know, trying to have our faith line up with our morality and, and values. So now... Now you're all grown up and you have three kids and a wife who's also a rabbi. And so how does your religious life connect with your family life, especially since both you and your wife are both in ministry? Yeah, certainly. Don't know if you can hear our very Jewish dog uh, also barking in the, in the background, yeah. and I apologize for oh, that. Oh, no. What's his name? So her name is actually Ugi. Ugi is based on the Hebrew word for cookie. Now, because our last name is, is Cook, we, we selected that name. She is a, a double doodle, so a mix of a labradoodle and a golden doodle, and very noisy, very friendly. And, uh, you know, in these pandemic moments, as we are still working from home, beginning to transition back to the office, she is... Uh, Letting us know that uh, that we are, are on her turf and she's in charge of the household. <laughs> well, that's very good that you have a a, uh, a dog that's doing her duty. <laughs> yes. And that's really funny. So when I was poking around, you, you actually really like to make word plays on your last name, don't you? Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's sort of been an ongoing thing within the family. You know, I, I grew up in the Sesame Street era. And, you know, so I've got an affinity for Cookie Monster. And, uh, you know, the, it's sort of always been a natural nickname that has attached itself to various members of our family. So one thing that we did for a couple of years when I was younger and my father was leading his congregation is that the holiday of Passover which depending on which denomination of Judaism you are in, is either a seven-day or an eight-day holiday. It comes in the spring, so it oftentimes would coincide with school spring break. And so my father, not sure where he came up with this idea because we were not otherwise necessarily outdoors people, but he got together a group of people from the congregation who would rent RVs. Maybe a couple families own their own, but at any rate, we would rent RVs and we would go on sort of a Passover RV camping retreat. 
And so CB culture was a part of that. And so our CB handle, when we would go on these trips, was Cookie Monster. And that's how we would keep in touch with with the other people as we were caravanning on these camping trips. So yes, there's a lot of cookie. There's a lot of of Cookie Monster, our dog's name, et cetera. And, uh, you know, it's been been sort of uh, enjoyable. Both my wife and I like to cook. We, We joked, you know, a number of years ago, when it seemed like everybody was getting their own show on Food Network, that we could have a, a show on the Food Network called The Rabbi's Cook. And uh, we enjoy those puns on our names. I happen to enjoy wordplay in general. And uh, yeah, it's a, a fun, fun piece. I think you should definitely pursue the cooking show called The Rabbi's Cook. I think that's brilliant. <laughs> Was there anything other than it was happening over Passover? Was there anything that made Jewish camping over Password Passover unique? So Passover is sort of our holiday of some would perhaps call it a, a holiday of, of restrictions because we are reenacting the idea of the Exodus. And among other things, we are told in the Bible, in the book of Exodus, that when the Israelite community was leaving slavery, that they did not have an opportunity, they don't, did not have time for their bread to rise, and so we eat the matzah crackers rather than regular bread. And again, different people have different practices as to how fully they, they followed these restrictions, but many will not eat any grain-based products, any leaven products um, other than matzah during that, that time. So on the one hand, Loading yourself up into uh, an RV camper means that you don't have to worry about your own kitchen and making those those preparations and and cleaning out your pantry and so forth. On the other hand, when you're going camping over Passover and you can't have ordinary hamburger buns or hot dog buns if you're going to have a cookout, or you can't have a regular graham crackers for s'mores and and so forth, that that uh, you know then changes the nature of the experience. Because the Jewish calendar is a lunar calendar, it moves around a bit. We, Unlike the, the Muslim lunar calendar, we have corrections to our calendar so that Passover is always a springtime holiday, but it's never going to be uh, two years in a row in exactly the same spot in spring. The bigger part about the camping trip is, was that it coincided with school spring break because that gave us a longer opportunity to, to travel. I would say, you know, we probably did it four or five years. I would say, you know, two or three of, of those years, it, it was fully over Passover. Some of those years, it was partially over Passover, et cetera, et cetera. So it was sort of the, the luck of the draw, depending on when spring break was. Hmm. That certainly gives a different perspective on your typical camping experience and the accommodations that you would have to make to be in compliance with those, the food restrictions for that celebration or or that time of service within the religion. So I think that within the Christian tradition, I mean, I, I am Catholic. And so during our Lenten season, we're very mindful about fasting and not eating meat Fridays and doing things like that. And I know even that little bit of having to think and make choices around what you're consuming when the rest of the world is not always in that mindset can certainly be challenging. So that's a really 
ingenious way to think about how to honor your traditions and the things that you want to accomplish and also kind of create a special space around that, that you have a little bit more control and intentionality where you don't have to be affected by the rest of the world. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that that's what, you know, in any faith, you know, what fasting or abstention type holidays and and traditions sort of speak to is, is having some degree of, of awareness you know, that it, it is the holiday, that, it, that you are creating sacred time and sacred space for yourself. Uh, you know, even arguably, you know, those who are not people of a particular faith at all, but who go through, you know, juice cleanses or the intermittent fasting and the other, you know, diet fads that, that come and go o- over time. You know, those are, at the end of the day, I think probably at least subconsciously, you know, sort of spiritual practices, because you are taking an, an awareness rather than just being, you know, your total animal side and being gluttonous and eating whatever it is that you would care to eat. You are having to to be aware and conscious of where is this food coming from? How is it going to impact me? And maybe even, dare I say, you, you take the greater time to say, what did it take for the farmer to produce this? What did it take for the truck driver to get this to my supermarket? What did it take for the supermarket clerk to stock this and make sure that I had fresh whatever it is that I'm consuming in rotation? There was a book that I I read last year at the outset of the the pandemic by an an author and humorist named A.J. Jacobs called Thanks a Thousand. And he started it initially as, as a tongue-in-cheek sort of endeavor, but he wanted to thank everybody involved in the supply chain that got him his food on his breakfast table. Then eventually he realized how daunting a task that was, and he narrowed it down to, I'm going to thank everybody that gets me my, my cup of coffee. And he ended up reaching out to, you know, it ended up being more represent than realistic, but he reached out to his barista. He reached out to the person who procures the beans. He reached out to a person who helps manufacture the cardboard sleeves that keep us from burning our hands when we grip our cups, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And tried to cultivate an attitude of gratitude, recognizing that, you know, there are many people who have to work together, you know, hopefully in some degree of symbiosis, to to bring us the stuff that we sometimes take for granted. And I think this book, again, originally written as, as sort of a work of humor, was in and of itself, you know, a, a very spiritual exercise because, you know, most of us have numerous retail encounters during the day where, you know, maybe we say a cursory thank you as, as the, you know, the grocery store checker hands us our bag. Maybe we say a cursory thank you uh, if we're interacting with a live person at, at the bank and the bank teller gives us, you know, our receipt with, with our bounce on it. But do we really know and understand these individuals with we're interacting? And I think that if I had to stand on one foot and describe you know, what religion is to me, I would say that it's about mindfulness and gratefulness, gratefulness to to our creator, however you may define him, her, it, them, 
mindfulness and gratitude towards those with whom we, we interact, a recognition that we are only one small dot in an enormous universe and recognizing that rather than everything revolving around us, everything revolves because we play a collaborative part with others. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I have not read that book, but I've read other books that he has written. And I think you're right in he's very disarming in a way where we can examine more closely some of these practices that we have. And sometimes we do them very mindlessly and bring some intentionality and mindfulness to the larger purpose of why we do them. And going back to what you were were originally talking about, are we following rules for rules sake? Or are we following rules because of the meaning that is inviting us to create and be aware of. So I know one of his other books was called A Year of Biblical Living, and it addressed a lot of those things. Yes, certainly. And I'm, I'm familiar with, with the, the Year of Biblical Living as well. And I thought that that was also interesting. You know, a, a person of faith might read that work and see it as, as being, you know, sacrilegious in the way that he, he stretches his interpretation of some of the commandments that he is undertaking, you know, for comic effect. But I think anything that gets you to take that step back and be mindful and and be aware is fabulous. You know, so another sort of commandment that, you know, people differ in their adherence to depending on where denominationally they fall and, and how it brings meaning to their lives is the laws of, of kosher food. The sort of noun form is, of the practice is, is kashrut. So we're told in the Torah, the actual commandment is do not boil a kid in its mother's milk. And then extension from there, there are other rules about the meat of which mammals you can eat, the meat of which birds you can eat, the what kind of fish you can eat, et cetera, et cetera. And so some people say, okay, we have to, to follow the absolute letter of the law. Some people say, even beyond the letter, the letter of, of the law, right? It says, says you shall not boil a kid in, in its mother's milk. We have come over the years to interpret that to me. Do not eat a meat product with a dairy product. And then even further, some people say, well, if I am eating a chicken parmesan sandwich, somebody might see me and say, oh, I'm not sure if that's chicken parmesan or veal parmesan. We know that that the laws of keeping kosher say that you shouldn't eat, eat meat with milk. So even though poultry don't lactate in the same way that, that mammals lactate, we're going to avoid mixing chicken and, and other poultry products with, with dairy products. And so there are all sorts of, of ways that people put twists on it. And in the late 20th, early 21st century, there came to be this other sort of understanding that, that said, okay, let's, let's look beyond sort of the letter of the law and get to the spirit of the law, because the practice of kosher certification, in, particularly in the United States, became a multi-million dollar industry. 
and that doesn't uh, sit well with me. So I'm going to be more worried about, you know, are the farmers who grow my food being paid a living wage and being treated fairly? Is my food being produced using child labor? What is the carbon footprint of getting my food to the, to the stores? Do I really need grapes from Chile in the off season? And so on and so forth. And so, again, there are a multitude of ways to think about it. Either we can say we are thinking about this in what we believe is an unbroken chain of tradition that has never had any fluidity or change all the way back to the time when Moses lived, which wouldn't be true or accurate, by the way, but is, is the way that some people believe. Or we can say, no, we have to consistently be adapting to modernity. And even if we're no longer following the letter of the law, as it was written down back in the time of Moses or Abraham or whatever, we are following the spirit of the law. And we are understanding, again, sort of the moral consciousness that we need to have in order to function in this world. Hmm. One of the things that I really appreciate as I hear you talking about this is that very close tie between how you choose to practice your faith and live in compliance or intentionally with the doctrine and dogma and rules and expectations surrounding your faith and really placing that within context of our modern life and how how you're choosing to exist in life. And I don't know that I see that occurring all the time across faiths. So because you have that mindset, how do you think that it does connect more clearly going back to kind of what I was asking before, how do you think that connects more clearly with your family life, with your life during the week when you're not going to services or just living as a human in the world? So our children, we have a a 15-year-old high schooler, a 12-year-old middle schooler, and a five-year-old who's very excited to be starting kindergarten in the fall. And we talk to them about world issues as we see them. And, you know, some of the particular inflection points on various justice movements here in in the United States, particularly over the past several years, you know, some of the ones that that have, have come to a head, such as combating racism, such as combating Islamophobia, such as combating anti-Semitism, such as combating sexism, justice work, et cetera, et cetera. And we have shared, for instance, Dr. King and and other quotes in the racial justice movements about judging people by the content of their their character rather than, than the color of their skin. That's not biblically articulated anywhere, but I believe that it is fully consistent with a Jewish teaching that says that when God created the first humans in the Garden of Eden, if you follow that, you know, sort of scriptural reference and, and you know, have some degree of, of faith in that version of, of the story, God created them in the divine image. So we all are sort of, uh, sort of imprints, carbon copies in some way of the divine. 
And therefore, each of us has a divine dignity. And so we explain it to our children and teach it to our children from a contemporary inflection point, and we teach it to our children as being fully consistent with Jewish tradition. You know, there are some um, in the in the religious world who feel that the Bible only supports heterosexuality as an expression of, of one's sexuality. And certainly, if you want to look at certain biblical verses in certain ways, I suppose that that one could could back up that argument. But we look at the larger scriptural sense that says love is love is love, and we say to our children, you know, isn't it wonderful? that people can feel and express love to whomever they they have that special feeling about. And so we take those things that we see, you know, when we are running the, the Today Show while we're sitting down down to breakfast and our kids are asking, you know, gee, wait, what, what did that little current event blurb just mean? And we take them, whether, you know, explicitly or implicitly, and tie them to to elements of of our faith. And I do the same thing for my congregation when I sermonize our main Sabbath services are on Friday evenings. And when I I preach on Friday evenings, I try to tie the ancient lessons of our scripture, what is going on contemporarily. So say on Friday evenings, say that part again about you tie your sermons in. Sure. So I make an effort you know, whether it, it is around our family's breakfast table, I should say my wife and, and I both make the effort, whether it's around uh, our family's breakfast table or whether it, it is when I give a sermon on Friday evenings when we have our main Sabbath worship, I really make, make an, an effort to try to tie in, whether implicitly or explicitly, things that are going on in the world contemporary moments where I feel that we need to, to step on and, and step up and act on our morality and, and our sense of, of purpose and, and being in the world. I try to, to connect that to the scripture for the week or to other forms of, of Jewish practice. So, for instance, we are, are recording this session in, in late June, and each week in Jewish tradition— there is an assigned scriptural passage that is studied and or read from the five books of the Pentateuch. And uh, so we are currently in the book of Numbers. Uh, and last Sabbath, we read the Torah portion known in Hebrew as Chukat. It is the Torah portion begins around chapter 19 of, of, or so of the book of Numbers that uh, begins by talking about a ritual involving a red heifer. If you're not familiar with with the passage, basically a cow that is completely red all over, cannot have even one stray white hair, must be found, must be offered as a special sacrifice. Its ashes are then burned up and mixed with cedar and hyssop and and other sorts of, of red stuff. And is eventually this concoction is used as a purification ritual for the Israelite priest, particularly after they have come into contact with with a dead body and and other sorts of things. I should reiterate for those, or I, I should make explicit for those listeners who are not familiar with contemporary Judaism, that the sacrificial cult in mainstream Judaism died out long ago when the Roman Empire destroyed the temple in in Jerusalem around the year 70 of the Common Era. So we're not sacrificing 
these sacrifices. Now there is a small contingent within Judaism that every once in a while will look for one of these purely red cows, because uh, if we are ever going to, in their mind, if we are ever going to get back to a state of full being fully in God's graces, then we need to purify ourselves in this manner, et cetera, et cetera. But what I taught and what I preached about on Friday night was perhaps this is all allegory. Perhaps the reason why modern, you know, agronomists and farmers and so forth have never been able to find a purely red cow is because the purely red cow doesn't exist. And we've been sent on a wild goose chase because the purpose of the scripture is not to tell us to find a perfect red cow, but to tell us that perfection, true perfection for humanity is inattainable. It is something to aspire to. It is something to quest for. But we are perfect just the way we are. And I tied that in then to this being Pride Month and helping our LGBTQ plus friends and neighbors recognize and celebrate their true selves and that that they are are perfect just the way that God made them. I tied it in a little bit, perhaps a, a little bit uh, clumsily, but but I tried to tie it in also to the fact that last Friday evening was also on the cusp of the celebration of Juneteenth and how for quite some time in, in this country, African-American people were identified as being three-fifths of, of a person and saying, no, we, we recognize that people of color and we celebrate that people uh, of color are also perfect as they are and worthy of the same rights and, and life and liberty and, and freedom and, and so forth. And so there is an example, again, you know, an example of taking contemporary moments and trying to, to connect them to scriptural teachings and so on and so forth. And also, in so doing, modernize and make relevant scriptural teachings. Mm -hmm. And I think that's so important for people to be, no matter what faith people are identifying with, I think in order for our faith to be living and breathing and relevant to our our modern lives, I think that is so critical for our pastoral leaders to help draw those lines, connect the dots. And, and that's what's beautiful about all of our holy scripture is that it's written in such a way that we can find multifaceted meanings again and again and again that are relevant to us in our culture now in the 2020s as it was in the people for the 1900s and the and their lived experiences and the people in the 1700s and the 7th century and i think that's beautiful and one of the things that's enduring about all of the Holy Scriptures, no matter what your faith tradition is, it has that ability to look at those, look at that text and to be able to inspire and teach and to provide us opportunities for, for true meaning. So that's, that's really rather beautiful. As you were talking about the way that the your services are structured 
and you have readings. I know in the Christian tradition, there's churches that are considered liturgical. So they follow a specific cycle of readings and they don't necessarily go in order, but they're in a three-year cycle where the intention is that all of the biblical scripture is being covered in such a way or in a certain way within that three-year cycle. And then there's other churches that are non-liturgical where the minister or the pastor just chooses a relevant scripture to address. And it might be some sort of theme or it might be some sort of series, but it's really up to the leader of the congregation to choose that. So how does the specified readings that you all do, how does that work? So each fall, uh, we have a a holiday known as as Simchat Torah, literally being happy with, with the Torah, where, and on that holiday, we read the very last passage of the book of, of Deuteronomy, and we read the very first passage of the book of Genesis. Incidentally, in Hebrew, the very last word of Deuteronomy is Yisrael, because it's making reference to the fact that Moses' teaching and, and preaching took place place in the eyes of the entire Israelite community. So the last word is Yisrael. The very first word of the book of Genesis is Bereshit, in the beginning. And the final letter of Yisrael is an L sound, the Hebrew letter Lamed. And the first letter of the word Bereshit in the beginning is a a bet, which can be a B or a V sound. And if you put those together, they actually spell the word Lev, which means heart. So it's sort of a, a nice tradition that the teachings of the Torah, the teachings of our scripture, are at the heart of the Jewish people. But anyways, when we begin in, in, in the fall with, with Genesis, with the portion known as Bereshit, each subsequent week, there are a total of 54 portions that the Torah has been subdivided into. And so each subsequent Sabbath, we then read another one of those portions on occasion in order the 54 portions into approximately 52 weeks in the lunar calendar. On occasion, we have to double up, but there are prescribed readings each week. And generally speaking, every single Jewish congregation on any given week is reading that same scriptural passage. Now, what they focus on within that scriptural passage may change, and whether the rabbi or the the service leader in a particular congregation then chooses to tie that scriptural passage to a selection, let's say, from Psalms, from Song of Songs, or so on and so forth, that is then led left to the the individual preacher, rabbi, leader, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I should also clarify again for listeners who may not be fully uh, conversant with with Jewish tradition that. While our main scriptural focus during worship services is on the Torah, on Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, we do read from the prophetic literature, we do read from the the sort of uh, what we call the writings section of the Bible, so Psalms, Proverbs, that sort of thing. We do read from those occasionally and have selections from our liturgy that are, that are comprised of those. And so we accept as scripture what we call in Hebrew as the Tanakh, which is called in in many Christian traditions, the Old Testament. So anything that, if you are a practitioner of Christianity, anything that you find in the Old Testament is also consistent with our scriptures. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Um, thank you for, again, elaborating on that and providing a little bit more context. And I really like the image that came into my mind was this ever-evolving or ongoing circle of reading the scriptures punctuated by a heart and then starting all over again. I really like that. And so you've done such a beautiful job about explaining very clearly about some of the faith traditions and structures. And I know you are an advocate for interfaith cooperation and interfaith learning and support. So can you talk a little bit about that, why interfaith collaboration is so important to you and what you've done in in our community to encourage interfaith dialogue and action? Certainly. The two congregations that I served prior to arriving in Champaign, when I first got out of seminary in Denver, Colorado, and then in in Seattle, Washington. Um, And in each of those locations, I sort of had interfaith work in my portfolio, but they they checked very different sort of boxes in how they they worked in practice. But in my last year of being in, in Seattle, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, charitable organization, of course, connected to uh, the Microsoft founder, they released a, a grant. They wanted to, the, to explore the issue of homelessness through the lens of faith. And so they released a grant to 14 different congregations of various faith traditions and denominations to uh, help do education and advocacy around homelessness. And Initially, we were each supposed to collect our check from the Gates Foundation and go off to our separate congregations and, and do that work. And the congregations that were you know, geographically convened to one another began talking about how much more advocacy we could do and how much further we could make the money go, frankly, if we worked together. And so that was my first you know, on-the-job introduction to interfaith collaboration. So when I moved here, we had a wonderful transition team here at the congregation ready to welcome me and my family. And and they asked, who do you want to meet? And I said, I would like to meet clergy colleagues. And I was informed, uh, perhaps slightly misinformed, that there was no organized group uh, that was broad-based that was bringing together clergy of of various faiths. I, I say that I was misinformed because there is a wonderful ministerial lines, particularly bringing together many of the pastors and leaders of historic African-American churches in, in our community. There's the Religious Workers Association of those who minister mainly to, to campus-related individuals. And there are other denominationally based, I believe, that the Methodist pastors in the community all get together from time to time, and the women who are leaders of faith communities in town get together from, from time to time but was able to work with a number of wonderful colleagues in convening what we have come to to call the Interfaith Alliance of Champaign County. We decided that it should not be clergy only, so it's open to lay people also. We meet generally on the, I believe it's currently the fourth Wednesday of each month. At We've been meeting on Zoom during the pandemic. Usually we meet at revolving uh, houses of worship. And our, the purpose of our meetings is, is twofold. We learn about and we, and we talk about generally issues of societal concern, locally or nationally, but we also do a great deal of relational work. And to me, that's, that's perhaps the most significant portion of 
of why I'm glad that the Interfaith Alliance exists and why I get involved in, in interfaith work. We cannot possibly sit fenced off in little silos of our own faith communities and imagine that that alone is going to bring peace. We have to figure out how to understand each other, how to communicate with each other, how to commune with each other, how to support each other, how to cry with each other, how to laugh with each other, et cetera, et cetera. Even if if at the end of the day, we go home and we each pray to our own conceptions of a creator and we each use our own liturgy, there are enough commonalities and there are enough beauties in our differences that we need to, to understand and appreciate in order to to build bridges and to have understanding. And I have been blessed to be able to have pulpit exchanges with some of my colleagues. We had a wonderful uh, pre-pandemic session. We did spearheaded in large part uh, by my colleague, Reverend Michael Crosby from First Mennonite Church in Urbana, but also strongly supported by the university, by the Department of Religion at the university, and a number of other community organizations. There was an an interfaith gathering ran over a weekend, and we had various panel discussions and and keynotes. Uh, We began with a keynote from Ibu Patel, who a community activist who talks about getting young people involved in, in interfaith work. And then we had a number of panel discussions and so forth throughout the weekend. And one of the most special and precious and heartwarming events that came up uh, out of that was that uh, CIMIC, the Central Illinois Mosque and Islamic Center, was going to be hosting a Friday afternoon and evening panel and event. And I wanted very much for Sinai Temple to be able to participate in it, both me personally and, and the congregation. And Logistically, there was no way that we were going to be able to to have the panel, have the dinner, which Simic was very graciously hosting, um, and be able to make it back to our usual 7.30 p.m. worship back in Southwest Champaign at Sinai Temple's location. And so Imam Usman Sawadogo of Simic and a number of the members very graciously said that we could worship there at the mosque. We had had opportunity previously. Simic members were very supportive to our community, in particular following the tragic uh, terrorist shooting at Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh back in 2018. They had come to worship with us and in so doing had run up against their prayer time and they had utilized our library space uh, as their worship space for their evening prayers. And so now they, they were very generous in reciprocating. And we were able to worship in the mosque and have a Friday evening Sabbath service within the mosque. And, you know, the not to take away the thunder from the rest of the weekend, which was also wonderful and full of very insightful learning and, and coming together and so forth. But to me, you know, the ability for you know, that unlikely occurrence to take place in Champaign-Urbana, Illinois. It shouldn't be such an unlikely occurrence, right? We, we, we shouldn't bat an eye at the fact that two communities of, of faith can love one another and, and can support one another in that way. But unfortunately, it's become more common to see this as, you know, the punchline of, of a joke, 
that Jews and and Muslims would 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 come together peacefully, right? It is uh, unfortunately so unusual in the 21st century that that we do have to remark upon it. But you know, this is one of the ways where we have found, despite cultural differences, despite those who would like to you know, conveniently put us in boxes and pit us against one another, we have, have found ways to be supportive of, of each other's communities. And this, of course, comes on the heels of, of other wonderful relationship building. At Sinai, I have hosted for a number of years pre-pandemic an interfaith Passover Seder, where we have been able to welcome other faith communities. Simic has, uh, during the month of Ramadan, opened its doors to a number of the iftar dinners that conclude each night of Ramadan and open that to, to, the, to the faith community. So, look, there are certainly political differences. There are certainly differences in how we conceive of, of our worship. There are differences in practice. Nobody is looking to convert one another religiously, theologically, politically, et cetera, et cetera. We are just looking to say, we need to know and appreciate and love our neighbors. A, because that golden rule is written into basically any expression of theology that you will ever find currently being expressed on our planet. And B, because it is the only path towards harmony and peace and letting everybody live the life that they deserve to live. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, that's beautiful. And... I am excited about the opportunity to share about these um, moments of collaboration and relationship building and to bring that out into the light a little bit more because it's a, it truly is a way to lead by example. And although there are many things that make each of our own cultures and traditions and faith practices unique. There are just as many things that we can find commonality within and if not find sameness, at least have some layers of understanding and some ways of just looking at each other with new eyes and appreciation of what what that experience is. So I applaud you for those efforts and I I'm excited to be able to share about the invitation for future Ramadan celebrations and Passover Seder meal celebrations and also about the Interfaith Conference I've had an uh chance to participate in that as a audience member. I've really enjoyed Valerie Kerr this year as the speaker. So thank you for being involved in pulling those things together in a m- more meaningful and ongoing way and not just this kind of one-time drop in the bucket. So I want to, this has just been a fabulous conversation. And I've really enjoyed learning some things from you and gaining some new perspectives. I have several just quick questions that I typically end with in these conversations that just help get people or help allow people to have a little bit more of a glimpse 
into you as a person and and who you are um, and who you be. So I have these kind of rapid fire questions that we can close with. So don't think too hard about them. First answer, best answer, but and and you can certainly have some fun with it. So are you ready? I will do my best. Okay. So something that people get wrong about you. Something that people get get wrong about me. That's a tough one. And, and, and I, I have this in advance and, and still, <laughs> I'll put it this way, that, you know, sort of, if people have not encountered Jews, or at least, you know, Jews of faith before, so, you know, rabbis and so forth, that they expect from sort of the Hollywood, you know, TV and movie version, a certain amount of uh, of, uh, of stringency and and insularity and, and so on and so forth. I sometimes joke that I would love to to start a business if I had all the money and free time in the world. Come have coffee with a Jew, because <laughs> I think that uh, you know the thing that people misunderstand about me is the thing that that we all frequently misunderstand about others that we have not otherwise encountered, um, which is. You know, at, at the end of the day, you know, we put on our socks and shoes in exactly the, the, the same way. And we we have some of the, the same hurts and pains and, and hopes and dreams and so forth. And, you know, while my faith expression may be different than, than yours, you know, otherwise, we all just want to to live and love and prosper in the, the best way that we know how. See, that's a great answer. What's your favorite or most meaningful faith practice or spiritual practice right now? Um, so I've been really enjoying writing poetry. So about five years ago, I mentioned earlier that, that I, I really like puns and, and words. So about four or five years ago, I was on Facebook and I was just goofing a, a around and I wrote a very bad pun for the holiday of, of, uh, of Hanukkah. And a dear friend and, and, and colleague of, uh, of mine said, gee, I bet you can't come up with one of these for every night of Hanukkah. Uh, there are eight nights to Hanukkah. I said, I'll do you one better. I'll come up with an awful pun for every Jewish holiday during this calendar year. <laughs> and, and that's sort of led me into trying to be deliberate because, um, you know, I, I don't take enough time for myself on these kinds of projects, trying to be deliberate, and each year linking, uh, trying to do something that I can do for a full annual cycle. So following the year of puns on the holidays was a year of puns on those 54 weekly tour portions that I spoke about. That then led me to find another entree point into the 54 different portions the following year. I think the following year I tied them to each to a piece of popular music that I, that I really enjoyed. And so this year I decided that I would uh, that I would write poems for each of the weekly portions. And you know, sometimes they they just take a semi-famous quote from the portion and expand on it and end up having nothing to do with the portion. And sometimes they sort of provide sort of a, an alternate uh, sermonic take on what the portion is, is about. But I've, I've really found that to be meaningful in helping me unpack each of the portions. Mm. Do you have any poetry that you would want to share? I'll share one quickly for that, that I wrote for, for this week. By way of, of introduction and, and explanation, this week we read the, the Torah portion, 
known as Balak, which talks about the Moabite prophet Balaam, who is hired by King Balak of Moab to come curse the Israelites, and instead he finds that when he opens his mouth, uh, he can only bless them. And he ends up blessing them and saying, how, how wonderful, how goodly are your tents, O Jacob, your dwelling places, O Israel. In Hebrew, uh, begins with the phrase matovu, how good. And there is a liturgical psalm that has grown out of, of Bilam's blessing that was supposed to be a curse that has in it the phrase from Psalms, as for me, my blessing comes before you, O God. And another way to interpret this idea of my blessing comes before you is I myself am a blessing to you. And so that's what, what I'm riffing on in this poem. So I called it the body electric. Uh, some of who know uh, Walt Whitman may recognize that phrase. I too sing the body electric, transforming my very being into a prayer, a hymn of praise to you. May all my soul, all my strength be directed toward words that sanctify and exalt you. Words of kindness for others, words of compassion for the community, words of hope for the future. Our tents, our dwelling places, our places of goodness and blessing when we strive to make them so. Let us be guided in paths of justice. Let us fill our hearts and our hands with love and with mercy. Let us always walk beside you with humility. Hmm. So not only a poem, but a blessing. Hopefully, hopefully. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. Um, and if you, you can also access that in our show notes. Um, do you share them anywhere or is this just more of a private practice? So it's a semi-private practice. I do share them on my personal Facebook page although I do have access restricted there for a variety of reasons. And then I'm hoping to eventually, once I finish the, the cycle of these, uh, to eventually have them published. But I also share them with the congregation uh, each Friday evening. Mm-hmm. Well, I hope you do end up publishing them because that would be an incredible devotional uh, around those yeah. things. So thank you for sharing that. Thank um, you. Where do you see the divine as most alive for you in this season? Yeah, I, you know, I, I love summer, which uh, some of my family, when they, when they hear this, will, will laugh at that because I, I, I also enjoy air conditioning. So I don't love summer, <laughs> I don't love summer in, in the sense of, of sweating outside, but, <laughs> but I do love summer. Our children just got dropped off. Our two older children just got dropped off at, at summer camp on Monday after their summer camp, uh, which is really the, their second home, and they might even argue their first home uh, and their most beloved place after it, like other summer camps, was shut down last year because of COVID. And they're, they're taking a lot of precautions, and it won't be exactly the same, but you know they really treasure that place. And my wife and I will each have an opportunity to be on faculty there next month. And, you know, so we get to, you know, we are among the few adults who get to sort of vicariously still have that, that experience by serving as faculty. So I see, you know, throughout the summer, but particularly at that summer camp location, I see expressions of, of the divine, you know, in kids that are just being kids and bonding with one another, in kids that are having 
aha moments because we try not, you know, it, it is a, a Jewish summer camp and we, we try to, to teach them, again, Jewish values and lessons and so forth, but we try not to hit them over the head with it. So you see those light bulb moments where they think that they're just out there swimming or, you know, playing sports or doing arts and crafts or whatever. And they say, you snuck something in for me and then um, I'm making a connection here because it's a summer camp setting. Of course, the sky is bluer than it is anywhere else. And the, the clouds are fluffier than they are any, anywhere else. And the birds sing sweeter than they do anywhere else. And, and all of that is also very important and sweet and, and, and meaningful as well. And that's where, I see the expressions of, of the divine. Yeah. What is one thing in your life that might seem ordinary, but is sacred for you? I think I touched on earlier, you know, how much I enjoy cooking and how much I, I enjoy that as a release. And uh, pre-pandemic, we had this practice at the synagogue that I hope that we're going to be able to get back to soon that we called First Fridays. And the first Friday of, of every month, we would gather at 5.30, have an early service, um, and then have a meal that I and other volunteers cooked for the congregation. Some people would, would, would look at that and, and say, you know, you have, you have enough else going on in, in, in your schedule. You know, why do you need to make, you know, soup or, or um, trying to even, even remember some of, the, some of the things I made? You know, why do you need to make a salmon dish for, for you know, 75 people? And as hectic as it gets in the kitchen sometimes during those moments, it's also very enjoyable and very holy and very sacred to be able to break bread together and to be able to to nourish, you know, other people and, and so forth. And so while that seems like, you know, a mundane or ordinary activity, it's something that I really love and I hope that we'll be able to get back to soon. Yeah. What are you deeply grateful for right now? I am deeply, deeply grateful for science. I'm deeply grateful for the fact that we have, as far as I understand, one of the highest vaccination rates in the state here in Champaign County. I'm deeply grateful for Julie Pride, the heroine who heads up the CU Public Health Department, and all of her staff working together. I'm grateful for the scientists who developed the various vaccines. I'm grateful for those who have been compliant and have pursued their vaccinations, and I'm grateful that research is ongoing, and hopefully sometime in the not-too-distant future, I am hopeful that uh, my five-year-old will be able to be vaccinated as well. But I, I am grateful that we have people who have been given the talents to figure out the science to help us turn the corner on this pandemic, and I am, am grateful that we are beginning to to see signs that we will um, be able to emerge from the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And finally, name a book you would recommend to the audience. When you and I first began talking about this podcast and began, you know, and I began thinking about what would it mean to, to talk about spirituality and particularly Jewish spirituality, the book that kept coming back to me is a book by, uh, by the author Judith Bjorst. Many of us who have been parents remember Judith, Judith Bjorst because she wrote the book that many of us read to our children or read even ourselves, Alexandra and the Terrible Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day. And she is largely known as a children's author, but she wrote a beautiful and I think important book, actually two books. I believe the one that came first is called Necessary Losses, 
And then she followed it up with a book called Imperfect Control. And it's Judith Viorst, V-I-O-R-S-T. Can you say the names of those two books again? Yes. Necessary Losses Mm -hmm. and Imperfect Control. Mm. And they can certainly be read cover to cover, but they both also function where each chapter is sort of an independent essay on the idea that we cannot control everything in the world around us. Okay. We need to accept that we only can can control our own behaviors and that we can't control those with whom we interact and we can't control anything else. And that when we when we make that realization and, and when when we accept that, how much smoother the world is is for us. It's it's a lesson I'm still working to to, to take fully to heart, I will admit. But um, that things aren't always going to go our way, and uh, and and in spite of all of that, we can still find beauty and meaning and peace within the world. Mm-hmm. I I told you I was in a, a conference last week in California, and one of the most challenging concepts for me that they talked about was an aspect of redefining surrender and what it means to be satisfied. And it sounds a lot like these two concepts about, you know, radical acceptance and being kind of letting go of the need to fight and just surrender to what is. And I think that is a difficult concept for all of us to implement. So I will definitely look up these books and share them. And thank you for the book recommendation. So this has just been a a very wonderful conversation. And, And like I said, I really appreciate your insight and your the way that you just walk through the world and and look at the world and it's given me a lot to think about and hopefully really enlightened our audience. And I just appreciate the time that you've taken Rabbi Allen to share that and to share yourself and let us in a little bit to who you are and your spirituality. It's been, been a pleasure and an honor to be a part of this. All right. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Everything is Spiritual and taking time to nourish your soul. Tune in each week for a little community and a lot of conversation. Or subscribe in your favorite podcast app so that you don't miss our next episode. For more resources around spiritual exploration, restoration, and transformation, be sure to sign up on our mailing list at experiencesoulcare.com. Visit our website for information on retreats, workshops, and services from our partners. Or better yet, come visit our welcoming space in Urbana to say hi and get a steaming cup of tea. Soul Care Urban Retreat Center is a warm, welcoming, and accessible place for you to refresh, renew, and restore your mind, body, heart, and soul. We set a great big table and everyone is welcome. Until next week, be well.